This, uh, this is going to be part three of a sermon series um, that we're doing. I'm going to introduce the series in just a minute, but first, I, I want to um, talk about a guy who's a member of this community. Um, while I'm doing that, you can get your study guides out if you want to use those. You were given those when you came in, and they kind of keep you um, on track with where we are in the message. So there's a guy whose name I will not name because um, many of you know him by name, and he is kind of a, kind of a gregarious, kind of a out there popular guy, a part of this community, and he is generally well liked. And I talk to him a lot, and, and uh, I, I listen to him, and, and he's genuinely a well liked guy. He's genuinely thought of as a good dad, um, and, and just kind of a family man. And from the outside looking in, he absolutely is a good guy and a good dad, at least from my perspective or vantage point most days especially when compared to other people. So like, uh, he's the kind of dad who, um, you know, he'll judge his daughter's um, uh, impromptu fashion show in the hallway, you know, even though he doesn't really know anything about fashion. Like he's the kind of dad that he's just that guy. And then he'll rush home from work every day, uh, straight from the office, instead of stopping like some other guys his age, like stopping at a bar to take the edge off or um, going to sneak in around a golf or, you know, trying to uh, go to the game instead. But he'll go home. He helps with the dishes. He helps with dinner. He helps the kids with homework, you know. Um, and when the homework's done, he'll get down on his knees and play with them. And, and he's just genuinely trying his best to be, uh, you know, a good a good guy and a good dad. And I think that's how most of us um, think of him when we look at him. But as I listen to him, it's pretty clear that he doesn't see himself the way everyone else seems to see him. So when he says, whenever I listen to your sermons <laughs> or whenever um, I think real long and hard about who I am, I start to see a different person. And it, you know, he's not like secretly a killer or anything like that. Don't worry, that's not where this is going. But like he, he knows that he might look good compared to his friends and peers, but that's not because he actually is that good. It's probably because most of his friends and peers are knuckleheads and he just looks good by comparison. But when he compares himself to the man he knows he could be and the father he feels that he should be, he begins to feel like he's missing the mark more than he's hitting it. And it, it bothers him. And what he is identifying when he feels that way is the burden of leadership. Like he knows he is um, called, created by God to do more than just be the fun dad. Being fun dad is great, but it doesn't really take your family anywhere. You know, it doesn't really prepare your kids in any way. And that's kind of where he's gotten to in his, in his um, role as a father. He has come to the place where he has understood his role as a father primarily being about showing his kids a good time, fostering their happiness, when in fact he knows deeper down that he should be fostering their holiness. Parenthood, fatherhood, isn't about 
hoping your kids will like you. It's hoping that they will become like Jesus. Like that's what we're doing when we're raising our kids. And so that requires leadership. Leadership is always hard. You cannot be a leader and always be liked. You cannot be a leader and play Mario Kart on demand. You can't. He has more important things to talk about with his kids. There are so many important conversations that he has avoided. So many truthful things he needs to say that he has sidestepped. So many opportunities to go deeper with his family that he has chosen to ignore. And now he's wondering, you know, what he can do. He knows he's got a finite time, finite amount of time with his children in the house. And he wants to use it wisely. But he's challenged by that as he should be, because leadership is always hard. That's why we have to talk about it. Because we, I, I think we have the story, it's safe to say, we believe that every one of us is created and called by God to lead in some capacity. Leadership is not a role, a, a job title, it is not an office. Leadership is influence with people. And you have that with some people. Maybe there's one. I don't know. You have influence with people. And you can say, but I'm not a leader. Well, that probably means you're, you're abandoning your post. You're abandoning your duty as a leader to use your influence well with people in your life. To use your influence intentionally to build something instead of just kind of having a good time and coasting through the day to day, which is so easy to do. And so you were created and called by God to lead, but leadership is hard. So we're talking about this for seven weeks here at The Story with a series called A Time to Build. Um, this is about a blueprint for visionary leadership. And just to define some of those words so that you're staying with me, I think um, I've already said what leadership is. It's influence with people, but I, this isn't going to be on the screen, but I just want to tell you, when I say visionary leadership, I'm talking about the kind of leadership that leads folks to see and embrace and pursue a vision. A vision is a, preferred, is a, is a mental picture of a preferred future. So it's a picture God gives you that looks different than what the present situation looks like. So how do we lead the people in our lives, spouses, friends, family, coworkers, neighbors? How do we use our influence to lead people toward a vision, God's vision, for their preferred future? That's what we're dealing with. And today's um, uh, passage is going to be from Nehemiah. We're looking at, at leadership through the lens of this Old Testament character named Nehemiah. Um, Nehemiah lived in 444 B.C., uh, it's kind of an obscure character in the Old Testament, but he was such a natural leader that we can learn so much from the few things that we read about him doing in this book of Nehemiah in the Old Testament. I want to give you a little background, and then um, we'll, we'll get into today's reading. So Nehemiah 444 BC, about 150 years after the holy city of Jerusalem fell to Babylon and was flattened, walls, temple, everything destroyed. For 150 years... Unbeknownst to Nehemiah, Jerusalem had remained in ruins. Nehemiah and many other Jewish families had been exiled out, uh, unable to continue living in Jerusalem. And so Nehemiah was living in the Persian city of Susa when the story takes place. And he just assumes, unbeknownst, like sight unseen, he assumes that 
Jerusalem was rebuilt because, of course, his once proud people rebuilt the holy city of God and rebuilt the temple where God lives and all this. Of course, that's in the works. We are a proud, we're the chosen ones, right? Chosen ones of Yahweh. Like, of course, we've done this. And then some friends of Nehemiah come to Susa. They visited Jerusalem and they tell him, look, it's still in ruins. It is still in ashes. It has been burned and never rebuilt. Nehemiah is floored by this. He cannot believe that these folks have never rebuilt this temple. But what has happened is the people have accepted the ruins as their new normal, which is exactly what people do when they lack leadership. When people do not have a leader to show them the way out of their ruins, they will stay with the ruins and accept them as normal. And so when we are leaders, part of it as we're gonna see today, old folks, young folks, all of us called to lead, your job is going to be to tell the truth about the ruins around us. We're gonna to explore today a little bit about what that means. In the last two weeks, we've seen two examples of sort of anecdotal things Nehemiah does that good leaders do. First of all, when God gives him a vision to be the leader, to go to Jerusalem and rebuild the wall, Nehemiah goes there and instead of going in on the back of a, a, a victory horse in a parade and announcing himself as God's chosen and anointed leader, he stays quiet. He flies under the radar. He goes out under the cover of night to observe the ruins because a good leader knows you can't rebuild something unless you learn why it fell in the first place. And so he's learning the vulnerabilities and what they were before rebuilding. And the second thing is Nehemiah, the whole time, keeps his mouth shut. Because good leaders know you shouldn't start yapping until you know what you're going to say, until you know what you're talking about, otherwise you'll lose the confidence of those you're leading. So today, this is where we pick up. Nehemiah is just about ready to announce God's great plan to rebuild the city wall through him and the people following him. This is in Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. If y'all want to turn in your Bibles or um, follow along on the screen. All right. How are we doing? Y'all good? Okay. I was in Nashville last part of the week, and I'm, I'm feeling good, man. Nashville's a fun town. Anybody? Nashville? Yeah. You were there too? Oh, yeah, you were there. Hey, sorry, I didn't know who you were. I saw you there. There's a lot of us that were there, and uh, it's going to be back, though. You know what Nashville doesn't have? Home home field advantage for the playoffs. That's what what Nashville... Okay, so let's keep going. All right, so um, you're all with me now. Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. This is Nehemiah speaking, first person. He says, then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in. So let me just pause, okay? Okay, This is funny to me. This is hilarious because this is the moment we've all been waiting for. This is the biggest moment of Nehemiah's life. He is coming out as God's chosen, holy, anointed leader with the plan, with the resources, and it's time. This is his moment. This is the biggest speech given in Jerusalem since King Solomon lived 400 plus years ago. And this is how he starts. You guys, we're in big, big trouble. We're in big, big trouble, you guys. I don't know about, if you've ever done any public speaking, like, Everything I know about public speaking says when you're trying to raise morale or raise money, like, you don't start so negative. <laughs> he says, guys, you see, you see the trouble we're in. Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. 
come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. That word disgrace is stronger than it sounds. It's an insult in Hebrew. It's like uh, in an honor culture, an honor society, like to be in disgrace was just about the worst thing you could be in. Then he says, I also told him about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. See, I would have, I would have led with that. <laughs> I would have led with, hey, hey, God's good and he's got this right now. Let's just, uh, let's keep it positive, you know. What? Let me, let me finish this and we'll come back. So uh, God has been with us and what the king had said to me. And then they replied, then they replied, let us start rebuilding. So they started to do the work without being forced or coerced or paid to do it. And then they began this good work. Okay. Why did Nehemiah start this speech so negative? Why did he start it this way? Didn't they already know what a trouble mess they were in? Like, didn't they already know what problems they had? Didn't they already know they were a city without walls, vulnerable to any attacker? Of course they knew all that already. They had lived with that reality their whole life. Nehemiah's like, look at these ruins. Look at them. Have you seen these ruins? And they're like, yeah, we've been stepping over them our whole lives. And every time they stepped over those ruins, they were reminded of what it represented. Their city fell to their enemy. And they were defeated. Those ruins were the ruins of their defeat, their failure. And Nehemiah's like, look at them. Look at the ruins. Look at the ashes, the fires that burned our gates. Why would he start there? Why not cover all that up with like poster board displays of what the wall is going to look like when it's finished. Like that, <laughs> that would be great. That would be a much better approach. Why not have a nice PowerPoint presentation with all like hopeful figures? And, like that would be a much more optimistic speech. Why did Nehemiah start with ruins and trouble and disgrace? I think he started that way because it was the truth. And leaders always tell those they're following, those that are following them, the truth. Leaders, good leaders, let me qualify, good leaders do not mess with the truth. And, and it's not to be mean, it's not to pile on or to shame. There is a much greater reason why leaders have to tell the truth to be good leaders. And if you've ever worked for a, a bad leader, you know exactly why. You remember the feeling of anxiety? Maybe you lived when you were a child. Maybe you lived under the roof of a bad leader. Or maybe you've worked for a bad leader or followed a bad leader in some way or another who, uh, who skirted the truth or ignored the truth or distorted the truth for one of probably one of two reasons. Either they were self-deceived, meaning uh, they, they didn't really see the truth themselves or they were just spiritually blinded to the truth, or they were self-absorbed, meaning that they saw the truth, but they would rather you like them than you know the truth. You know, that kind of false leadership. If you've ever lived or worked or followed a leader like that, you know the kind of anxiety that truthless leadership uh, um, results in. You know, you felt it. it, it you, just, you, you don't even know when it's all going to fall apart. You don't even know if your household's going to stay together. You don't even know if you have a family when you come home after school if you were raised in a situation like that. You don't know what a company's going to do under the leadership of somebody who doesn't embrace the truth. Leaders 
tell the truth, even when it means they won't be liked, even when it means it's unpleasant, uncomfortable, or inconvenient, leaders tell the truth. And there's a reason why, and it's more than just, you know, being mean, it's, it's strategic. It's strategic. It's good leadership. I want to tell, I'm going to unpack this a little bit for a second. When I was in seminary, I had this professor. His name um, was Dr. Chun, Dr. Young-ho Chun, and he's from Korea, and he's a, a, a phenomenal professor. I can say that now, but back then, I hated him. I could not stand this professor, and the reason why is because he was really hardcore. He was rigid. He was like a really orthodox guy, a Presbyterian guy, and he, you know, knew the Bible cover to cover, and, and he knew all the rules, and he was always talking about sin and hell and the danger of that we're in for eternity, you know, if we don't get right with Jesus. And it just seemed a little heavy-handed to me, especially because when I was in seminary, I wasn't a Christian yet. And so I, I didn't want to hear about all of that. I was a social activist who used Jesus' name whenever it was convenient for my political aims back then. So of course I didn't like this professor that was always talking about sin and stuff. I didn't go to seminary to hear about sin. I, I, wanted, I didn't want to know how bad a place the world is. I wanted to know how to make the world a better place. And a lot of us like um, uh, opti wide-eyed optimistic students felt that way. I remember um, one class in particular, and Dr. Chun opened uh, up the class for Q&A. And there was another student who was my age, and he raised his hand very confidently. And, and he said, Dr. Chun, Romans chapter 8, verse 1 says, <laughs> right when he started, I was like, dude, you're going to get, you're going to get <laughs> smashed. You're trying to quote the Bible to Dr. Chun. Romans 8, 1 says, there's no condemnation for those in Christ. So I'm just curious why you're always talking about sin and danger and hell and, and, and uh, you know, judgment. He said, um, it seems unnecessary, it seems punitive, and I'm afraid you're going to push away more people my age. Young people will not come to church if all they hear about is sin. And you could have heard a pin drop in the room. I'm so serious because no one ever talked that way to Dr. Chun. And Dr. Chun just sat back. He's, uh, he's the biggest Korean guy you'll ever see. He's like six, he seemed like 6'8". He wasn't, but he was just like a giant to me. And he stood back and he... Breathed and then he spoke softly. And he said, If we cease to speak of sin, how will we ever explain the gospel? And after a moment, he elaborated some more. And he said, If there was never a debt to pay, then why did Jesus die? And then he stopped again, and he just looked at us. And then he levied a bomb on us that I've never forgotten in 18 years or something. He said, whenever Christians stop talking about sin, we rob people of their opportunity to repent. Whenever we cease to speak of sin, we rob people of the gift of repentance. Now, I wanted to just take a step back from that statement, first of all, just to say, I wasn't a Christian then, and I didn't even like this professor, but I have remembered that statement verbatim all these years because it was so profound, and it's so true. 
But I also wanted to take a step back and define that word repentance because some of y'all have only heard the word repent from somebody on a sidewalk yelling at you downtown. So I want you to know what Dr. Chun meant when he said the gift of repentance. Repentance isn't just shame and feeling bad about yourself. Repentance is recognizing the ruins around you, the ruins you've been living in, the ruins most likely you've accepted as your new normal, which never should have been the case recognizing them as ruins, and then rejecting the sin or the, the behavior, the actions, the generational tendencies, whatever it was that ruined you, that brought those ruins down upon you, and then resolving to build a new life by the grace of God. Being honest with people you're leading. This is the point. You're leading them toward repentance, so that rebuilding is their idea. You don't even have to coerce them or pay them or anything to do it. Like they want to do it because they've repented. They've seen their ruins and they want to build something new. All right. So that's the point that I think Nehemiah is getting at here. And it's really not just Nehemiah in the Bible. Jesus leads the same way. If you ever read Jesus and you get to the parts where you're like, ugh, that was tough to read, you're probably reading a part where Jesus is being an honest leader. Like, for example, there's this passage in Matthew chapter 19, which um, what I'm about to read to you takes place after Jesus is approached by a rich young man, and the rich young man wants to join Jesus' church. And I try to put myself in Jesus' position here. I'm not sure I would do what Jesus did here, although I probably should do more of this. Jesus handled it differently than most preachers would. <laughs> so what happened before, uh, this is not what we're reading yet, but I'm going to get there. But what happened is this man comes and he says, I want to live forever. I want to go to heaven. Eternal life. What do I have to do? Jesus said, follow the commandments and you're good. And the man said, I've been following the commandments, but the implication is there's still something missing. And Jesus goes, if you want to be holy, if you want to be perfect, if you want to be like me, go sell everything you have, give the money away, and then come follow me. And then this is the story from there. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. And then Jesus said to his disciples, truly, I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. It is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. So just pause for a second. Who's he talking? Is he talking about 1% of us in this room? The reason I chose this passage is because I'm afraid sometimes we think that he's just talking to like the upper 1% or 2% of any room that we're ever in. Nah. He's probably talking about all of us living in Houston, Texas, and near this area of Houston, Texas, and uh, in this day and age in this country. So, listen to what Jesus says. It is hard for someone who's rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, this is crazy. He says, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who's rich to enter the kingdom of God. What? Then it goes on. This is the second part. He says the disciples heard this, and they were astonished. And astonished isn't like, I think, sometimes we think, wow, Jesus. It wasn't like that. They were taken aback. And we know that by context clues, because then they're like, Jesus, if that's the case, who can be saved? It's like they're throwing their hands up. Who can be saved, Jesus? It's like that kid talking to Dr. Chun, but infinitely worse, because they're talking to Jesus. If that's the case, who can be saved? 
Now, I think sometimes we think that all the disciples were a bunch of poor guys who maybe would have gotten on board with this idea that rich people aren't going to get what we get one day, but not all the disciples were poor. Matthew, for example, who wrote this, probably had quite a bit of money. He was a publican, which meant he was an overseer of tax collectors. They had some money in his pocket. Um, so did probably Judas Iscariot and a few others. So and anyway, I don't think it was just the rich disciples that were concerned with this. I think it was, I think it was all, all of them. Even the poor disciples were like, we could have used that guy, Jesus. Like, stop running off the rich guys, Jesus. We need new shoes. For goodness, like, we, need, we need more bread. We're starving, Jesus. Like, let's keep the rich guys around. You know? like, let's upgrade this operation, Jesus. Have you seen what the other pastors are flying around? And they got these private jets, Jesus. Like, you got to keep these guys close to you. And... That's not what he does. He looks at them and he says, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Now why would Jesus go out of his way to say something so uncomfortable? To say something so outrageous about one particular segment of the population. It is harder for a rich person to get into heaven than it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And if you've been in, I would say, wealthy-ish, like American churches for very long, you've probably heard preachers like me equivocate this and say, hey, 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 Jesus was really talking about this, this gate in Jerusalem that was shaped like the, like the head of a needle and it was really hard to ride your camel through it. No, that's not it. <laughs> Sorry, there's been no such gate like discovered, like we made that up to get around the reality that Jesus says it's harder for a rich person to get to heaven than it is for a camel to go through the eye of an actual needle, y'all. Why would Jesus say this? I think he said this because, well, for the same reason that he said everything else he said. He said this because it's true. hard. The more you have, the harder it gets. Of course it's true. You know it. We always like think it. We talk about it. Like when we had less, it was easy, easier to be faithful, at least to be reliant and dependent on God because you really needed him to put food on the table. When you've got a house full of food and stuff, it's harder to be that reliant. It's not impossible, but man, it's hard to be that reliant like you maybe once were. Whenever you have more, it's hard to be entirely faithful because faithfulness to God means giving him everything you have. And when you have more to give, obviously it's going to be harder. And you know this, practically speaking, the more you have in life, the more distractions you're going to have come your way. The more you have in life, the more people will resent you and envy you and hope for your downfall. And if you do fall, they'll kind of secretly applaud. Ah, ha, ha, they had it all, and now they don't. Like, you sense people are rooting against you. It makes you isolated and paranoid and distrustful of people. And when you walk into rooms full of people, and when there's a preacher there especially, you're, you're made to feel like a human vending machine or a human piggy bank. Like, people don't even see your humanity anymore. They see your dollar signs. Of course it's harder to be faithful to God whenever you have more, because it dehumanizes you if you're not careful. Of course, and that's what Jesus wants you to know. He's not being mean about rich people or he's not condemning wealth across the board. He's saying, watch out. When you have more, it's gonna be hard. Be careful. He says it because he loves you. 
He loves you. And when you're leading people you love, you tell them the truth, even if it hurts, even if it's hard. You tell them the truth. That's what Jesus is doing here. Of course, he's helping people see the red flags before they come now. He doesn't, <laughs> he doesn't stop there. Thank God. There's also some resolution to this teaching. You heard it at the end of that passage that I just read where he comes back around the disciples like, who can be saved? And Jesus is like, well, with men, it seems impossible. But with God, all things are possible. The obvious conclusion being, of course, hell's just not going to be one big rich cocktail party and heaven's going to be everybody else. Like, of course, there's going to be rich folks that enter the kingdom of heaven. It's because it's, it, it's not really up to us. There's going to be folks of means that go to, the, to heaven, and, and it's not because of their wealth or in spite of their wealth or because of their goodness or their badness. It's because God is so good that camel will go through that eye of that needle, regardless of what we think is possible or not. But be careful, be careful with wealth, be careful with stuff. You need to know how hard this is going to be. That's leadership. And the thing is, Jesus could have gone straight to the promises that all things are possible with God and left all that other part out. But when you do that, when you leave truth out and go straight to the promises, your promises become platitudes. They become empty, meaningless. They're not based on anything. Jesus had to take them through the truth first, even though it was brutal truth, so that they would be ready for the promises to receive them. See, Nehemiah follows the same pattern. I don't know if you caught this. Nehemiah followed the same pattern when he said, guys, guys, we're in trouble. We're in big, big trouble here. You see the trouble that we're in. You see the ruins, the fire, the ashes. You see the disgrace. But God has given me a vision. So let's rebuild. Right? So he could have started with the good stuff. God has given me a vision, y'all. Woo, woo. But he would have forsaken the reality of the ruins. And nobody, nobody ever cleaned up any ruins that they refused to acknowledge or that they failed to see or that they accepted as their new normal. Nobody ever fixed a problem that they never acknowledged. Nobody was ever really free from or forgiven of Sins that they refuse to own up to. So leadership requires truth and hope. Truth of our present circumstances and the hope for tomorrow. It's not easy. But that's the line we walk. That's the line this guy that I talk about in this congregation, that's the line he's trying to walk. He's been airing heavy on this side, trying to be fun dad, trying to be liked, trying to make him laugh, trying to give him the carefree childhood he never had. And, and, and he's forsaking truth to do it, and he knows that it's wrong. And I know how wrong he knows it is because that guy I've been telling you about, in all honesty, that's me. I'm the fashion show judge. I'm the guy that rushes home to make dinner and to play with kids and do homework and be fun dad. That's me. And I'm convicted. But I've been convicted before. But I haven't been convicted enough yet to make the changes I know I need to make. 
just when I get to that point, there's that little voice in my head that goes, hey, hey, Eric, take it easy on yourself, man. You're a better dad than most guys. You're good. You're there. Like, that's the bar for, for fatherhood. Just be geographically re relevant. You know, like, you're there. Your heart is beating in the house. Like, that's, that's not what it means to be a good father. Right? It might be better than some of the dads you've witnessed, but there's more. So I'm convicted. I've been convicted all week about erring too far on this side of being liked. Not far enough on this side of being honest. The reason this troubles me is because I know that the life my kids have to live is at times going to be a battle. And the way that I'm raising them now or leading them now is that preparing them to fight the battles ahead. Are they going to have the tools they need to overcome what life is going to throw at them? To answer the questions they're going to be asked about their faith. Do they know enough about scripture to know where to go when they're all alone and depressed and afraid? Like, do they know what they need to know in order to keep following Jesus when they're outside of my household. And I know not all of us are parents here, so you might be asking, what does this have to do with me? Well, the same questions apply to your friends who are in your sphere of influence, your coworkers, if you run a company. How are you running it? How are you leading those employees to be more than just worker bees? How are you discipling them? Every moment matters when you're a leader. Every day you get up with that intentionality in mind of leading and leading well. I don't want my kids growing up thinking it's all about them and that their goal in life is to be happy. I know from experience that's a recipe for misery and emptiness. I don't want them to be happy. I want them to be holy. I don't want them to like me. I want them to be like Jesus. That is my job. And that is your job not just to skim the surface and just do your work and go home and watch Netflix. Your job is to invest yourself as a leader in the lives of those you are leading and influencing them to live for more than just themselves and to be honest about the ruins they've accepted as their new normal so that they can buy in wholeheartedly to the vision God is giving them to rebuild their life by his grace. This is a message for all of us. I pray that we take this seriously, that we all become the leaders God created us and called us to be. Would you pray with me? Jesus, uh, this is um, not necessarily something that we all want to hear today. The idea that there is more to do or that we need to have some tougher conversations or we need to be more honest. Because many of us just feel maxed out as it is and we feel like there's not a lot more we can put on our plates, God. I pray that your grace would be known to us now and that your spirit would show us how to prioritize, how to carve out the parts of our lives and the time that we're spending on things that, doesn't, that really don't matter so that we can live lives of purpose and fierce intention, 
using the influence you give us to make a difference in the lives of those we're leading. God, remind us again and again that it's really hard to get to that vision of hope without first looking upon the ruins of today. Help us to be honest in the way that we're leading. Help us also to be faithful and hopeful. Let our honesty give way to your vision for the future. Thank you for how much you love us. You love us so much that you tell us exactly how we are in the situation that we're actually in. And you tell us the problems that we're in so that you can lead us out of them. Help us to follow you faithfully and to lead others to follow you as well. Pray in your name, Jesus.